It's the Paddle Podcast. Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Paddle Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson. Today's guest on the show is Larry Kane. Larry is a Canadian gold medal winner in the 1984 Olympic Games in the OC1 race. Uh, he is now the head of the head coach at Paddle Monster. He and John from Distressed Mullet teamed up to enhance uh, the coaching and training for racing. He comes on the show today to discuss first stroke technique. We have a very technical conversation about stroke and how it pertains to surfing. Uh, and then we dive into his Olympic career lessons he's learned, and there's some very uh, good takeaways in there from his training mindset and winning mindset. If you liked the Jamie Mitchell, the Kyle Lenny podcast, this one runs into that same vein once we get past the technical stroke conversation. All right, uh, this week coming up, we have the debut of the Progression Project current state movie. Uh, Juno Beach on the 8th, Orlando on the 9th, St. Augustine the 12th, and Jacksonville Beach the 13th. So if you're in the Florida area and you'd like to come out and uh, watch the film, have a beer, hang out, um, then check paddlewoo.com for those dates. All right, guys, enjoy the episode, and if you need anything, hit me up on paddlewoo.com. Larry Kane, thank you very much for being on the Paddle Blue Podcast. How are you today? Uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, on. I, I, I'm great. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful day here in Toronto. Uh, I've had good paddle already and um, looking forward to a chat. Nice. Well, excited to have you on the show. Before we jump into our first topic, which is going to be stroke technique, just let the audience know who you are. You're an Olympic gold medalist in the 1984 Games, um, but give us a little bit more background uh, so folks know where you're coming from. Okay, well, uh, I live in Canada. I'm Canadian uh, in the Toronto area, and I started canoeing when I was 11 years old at the local canoe club. Um, when I was uh, 13, I saw a Canadian paddler by the name of John Wood win a silver medal in the 500-meter single canoe at the Olympics in Montreal, and I turned to my parents. I was watching it on television. I turned to my parents, and I said, that's what I want to do. And I was, was really fortunate that I had great direction and guidance from good coaches and really good role models at the club where I uh, grew up and uh, with eight years of hard work and um, good direction I was able to make the Olympic team in 84 and win a gold and a silver medal. Um, I went back in 88 and 92 I came fourth in 88 and in 92 I came I raised doubles and my partner and I came seventh um, which was a disappointment um, I tried to go back to the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta and I came second at the selection behind an athlete from my club that had seen me race in 84 and basically turned to his parents and said that's what I want to do. So um, things work in circles. Um, when I got out of sprint canoeing as a competitor, uh, I started, uh, I still trained uh, and I coached at the canoe club. I trained with the kids that I was coaching so I was paddling every day but I began racing dragon boat with a bunch of my paddling buddies. Um, they were former national team members and then some young paddlers that hadn't yet made the national team and we traveled around the world racing at the world championships and having a lot of fun. We did really well and then I started racing a one-man outrigger 
in 2007 through 2000 and basically 10. And I was at, it was at an outrigger race where I was introduced to a stand-up paddleboard. And when I tried it, I right away realized that it was like C1, which was which was what my spring canoe is called, only standing up instead of in a high kneel position. And um, so I was pretty much hooked by that right away. I felt amazing uh, in flat water anyway on the right side because I paddled right uh, on the right side my whole career in canoe. You don't change sides in an Olympic canoe. You just stay on the one side. But on the left, I was really weak. And so over the years, I've had to work to mirror what I do on the right on the left. And um, I'm 53 years old now. And the cool thing is that I'm, I'm still getting better every day. I'm learning new skills all the time. I'm improving my uh, my paddling fitness for a sup board, like the specific fitness that you need to um, to paddle on a stand-up board well. Um, and I know that if I was paddling in canoe still, I would be uh, all I'd be doing is getting slower, but because it's a new sport and there's so many aspects of training and technique that you have to master in stand-up paddling to be good, uh, there's lots of ways to improve. And so um, I'm still really enjoying competing and, and trying to be better myself. And at the same time, I've gotten into, I've done a lot of coaching in, in canoeing, <clears throat> sorry, in canoeing from um, the club level right up to the national, uh, the national team. But uh, more recently, I've gotten involved in coaching stand-up paddling. And, um, you know, coaching is coaching and paddling is really paddling. Um, it's just that the, the craft we're paddling is a little bit different. So um, it's been really re- rewarding for me both as a competitor and, and also as a coach. And uh, uh, I can't get enough of it. So I was exposed to you through John at Distressed Mullet. He posted up, I don't know, a month or two ago, the 1984 um the highlight, I guess, race the, that you won the gold in. And I use that video for inspiration in stroke. I think it's beautiful, and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes so that anyone who has not seen that can can check out that video. Um, the, the majority of our audience here, we are a surf-focused, uh, paddle-surfing-focused podcast, uh, is going to be surfers. But I know there's a lot of crossover between surf and race and this podcast will probably be listened to by a number of folks in the racing scene too so we'll keep it a little bit open-ended and not uh, just on the surf side here but something that struck me in that video is that the i think you just called it the high kneel stance that you use in the c1 is very similar to the surf stance do you do you practice mm-hmm. in that surf stance are you faster paddling in the the surf stance, like on your, on your front side, strong side, then in a more parallel race stance, do you, do you switch your feet back and forth when you are racing? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so when I first started, when I first stepped on a on a stand up paddleboard for the first time, I stood with a really pronounced staggered stance. Like I, I stood like you know surfers do when they're charging, uh, you know, a big wave, and uh, because. You know, really, if you're in that high kneel position that I'm in in a canoe and you kind of stand up in your canoe, you're in a surf stance. And that's just what felt normal to me. Um, but gradually over time, I did narrow my stance. Um, but I do not stand with the parallel stance that, you know, where both feet are side by side like most stand-up paddlers do. I do have uh, a, a split or a staggered stance um, so that when I'm paddling on the right, my left foot is ahead, 
and my right foot is a little bit behind so that the toe on my right foot would be about at the heel of my left foot and my toe on my right foot kind of points out towards the, the water a bit. Um, and I find that's where I get the most speed, where I'm able to engage my hips the most in the stroke, uh, where everything just seems to feel the most, uh, the best to me. And when I paddle on the left, I do have to change uh, stance, and I go to the opposite stance. Um, so, so you go it all does the involve way. some movement. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. So yeah, when you I go paddle, pretty we... much off, like mirror image stance. Okay. I think we've got a little bit yeah, of delay here, so I apologize for that. Uh, yeah, I, I go to pretty much mirror image stance on the left, and um, it does, you know, on one hand, it, you could consider it a disadvantage because you have to move, but the thing I found that in in the slowest, you know, changes of stance that I do are in flat water, and when I'm out in big water, um, downwinding, uh, you know, waves anywhere from you know, two feet to six feet, um, I don't even realize how I change stance. I've just all of a sudden, I'm, I've changed. And so it's like just a little hop or it's usually like a little hop. And, um, uh, you know, I think surfers could relate to this because when you're, when you're surfing, you're not thinking about your footwork. Your footwork is a natural, reflexive, instinctive movement that's uh, come from you know, repetition, years and years of repetition. And so that's the way my stance changes occur in in um, bigger water. But in flat water, it's actually a slow kind of a two-step process. And, and um, um, But the interesting thing is I think that because I move around on the board, um, I find my legs and my back and all the posture muscles that you use when you're standing up, they don't get as fatigued. Um, because I'm not always in the same position. And when I paddle in a canoe, I'm always in the same position. And, and quite frankly, I can't paddle in a canoe uh, nowadays without, you know, getting really stiff and, and uh, tight after about three miles because I, I, you know, one is I'm not, I don't do it enough to, to, um, to, to be able to paddle longer without getting stiff. But the other thing is when you're stuck in one position only, you tend to get, you know, you tend to get stiff. And uh, if I'm moving around on my board all the time, that doesn't seem to happen on a stand-up board. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the specific um, skills within stroke and how you approach those. I, I guess we could start with uh, blade entry and what your objectives are, what your mental... I talk a lot about in my coaching and on the podcast. I'm a big fan of deliberate practice. I talk about mental representations, mental models, uh, things that we can visualize to, to perfect technique. So when you're placing the blade in the water, what are those mental representations that you're using uh, and what are your objectives in that portion of the stroke? And we'll kind of just break down the stroke part by part there um, in this format. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I guess... You know, quickly, um, I've gotten away from focusing on the mechanics of paddling so much, and I've looked more at trying to accomplish sort of five basic things. So I'll just go through them really quickly. Um, the first is that uh, you need to put your secure your paddle in the water and then pull yourself 
to the paddle and then even push yourself past the paddle. That's what moves the, the board forward. The second is that you want to engage and use big muscles preferentially over small muscles. Uh, so really you're looking at using the middle of your body, your hips, your legs, your core, your back, uh, your shoulders, but uh, not so much, you know, your arms and things like that. Um, you want to do, uh, you want to use your body weight. You want to get your body weight outside of the board and on the blade because that will add to uh, the forces that your muscles are exerting uh, on the, uh, against the water with the paddle. But it also makes your board lighter. Um, it, your board will, if you can get weight outside the board and on top of your paddle, it actually lightens the weight that's displacing and the amount of water that your board displaces. And uh, therefore, your board will move more easily over top or across the water. Um, you want to do as much as you can with a positive blade angle uh, as opposed to a negative blade angle where the blade is behind you. And then the last thing is that you want to do things that kind of maximize the distance that the board travels or the acceleration that the board has off the back of the stroke so it, it travels a, a greater distance between strokes and doesn't slow down as much. So those are the five things I always think about trying to accomplish. And uh, obviously, you know, the question you're asking about the blade going into the water is very important because that's what sets the blade in the water and secures it there so that you can then go through the process of, you know, engaging big muscles and body weight to pull yourself by the paddle. So what I like to try to think about is, is um, continuing to extend forward with my paddling side, both my, you know, my hips uh, and even my paddling side leg uh, to a degree uh, and my paddling side shoulder, my hand, you know, everything extending forward. Uh, even as the blades going in the water, I like to think of the blade, even when the tip of the blade has hit the water, I like to think of it still moving kind of forward into the water as it buries. And what that's doing essentially is making sure that the blade gets buried as quickly as possible in front of you. And I do a lot of video analyses for people and I notice that a lot of people, you know, they have what appears to be a big reach. I don't even think a big reach is that important, but they, they you know, they're they're getting the blade out in front of them uh, and the tip of the blade might even contact the water you know at the point of their maximum reach but the blade travels a long way back towards them in the process of getting buried which means it's not they're not doing a very good job of sort of setting the blade in the water and securing it in front of them and, and then allowing themselves uh, as great a distance to pull themselves by the paddle so you know if you could trace the the tip of the blade, the path that the tip of the blade takes through the water in a, you know, looking at somebody from the side and watching them paddle, if you could trace the tip of the blade, you'd really want it to look like a Nike swoosh, you know, it's how it goes deep in the water and then sort of comes up uh, during the latter part of the stroke as you're sort of coming up with the, with the paddle uh, in the latter part of the stroke. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people take far too long to get their blade buried. So I really like to think about you know, gathering water behind my blade and, and actively, you know, trying to make the, uh, the paddle blade an extension of my body, uh, an extension of my hands, basically. Um, I think we all are able to visualize reaching into something with our hands and, and actually, you know, digging deep into something and, and, and scooping our hand into something and gathering as much of whatever it is behind our, you know, within our hands as possible. And I think you need to to sort of visualize doing the same thing with your paddle blade, making it an extension of you and feeling, trying to actually feel the water that loads onto your blade as you do it. And if you can do that aggressively, 
you know, because it's about going fast. So if you can do that aggressively, um, then, you know, you can get your blade very quickly uh, in the water and, and water loaded behind it that you can then use to, you know, to pull against. Gotcha. So the way that I paddle and my kind of model for paddling is based on breaking down a lot of video from folks that I've surfed with, be it you know, all the guys on the progression project, Mo has an incredible stroke um, that I've spent a lot of time modeling and, and then also working with Eric Goodman from foundation training. Cause I have a bad back and incorporating the principles of the foundation training um, and using the hinge and pulling from hamstrings and, and really trying to keep my stroke in my largest muscles, hamstrings, glutes um, and spinal mm-hmm. erectors. I would say I'm not a physiology guy, um, but is, is do you believe that that is kind of the same representations that you're thinking of there and, and using the hinge using the the hip joint hinge as far as the kind of uh, the opening closing of that to drive the stroke and I try to keep the majority of the force there and out of the arms and lats so I try to keep it in those big muscles mm-hmm. yeah I mean I, I look at the arms as just basically connectors which okay. are you know, they're like tie rods or connectors are just connecting your big muscles to the paddle. And obviously, the hips to me are the, you know, they're the biggest, most heavily muscled joint in the body. So you really want to try to find a way to engage them. Um, so I like to think of, you know, when I get the blade in the water, I like to try to be forward with my body weight. And I like to actually try to be forward, like almost like if you could draw a line. Uh, uh, from my, if you're looking at me from, or looking at a paddler from the, the side, you would see like a line kind of up their, their, um, their lower legs, um, and then their, their upper body would kind of have the same forward lean to it, um, so that your, you know, your weight is actually kind of in front of your toes, you know, you, the, it's like you're almost going to topple over your toes and land on the deck of your board or do a face plant in the water, and then the blade obviously gets in the water, uh, to support you so you don't topple on to the to the deck of your board. But that means the body weight gets on the blade like immediately uh, at the beginning of the stroke. And um, and because your hips are forward as you do that, I like to think, you know, my, my butt's got to be in front of my heels when I do that. Um, now my, my, my hips are, are available to drive back uh, and, you know, work against the, the, the fully loaded paddle. If you contrast that with a person who in the process of getting their blade in the water kind of counterbalances the forward motion of their upper body with their bum going out behind them almost like they're about to sit in a chair um, that person doesn't get their weight forward on the blade their their weight tends to stay centered over their feet because the whatever weight goes forward over the paddle gets counterbalanced by their hips and their bum out behind them but the other thing is that because their hips are already back when the blade goes in the water, they can't contribute to to the pulling uh, against the paddle. And um, so, you know, those are two contrasts. And uh, as far as hinging at the waist is concerned, um, you know, I, I do bend at the waist, absolutely. But um, I find that a lot of my, um, what I do to get the kind of the blade deeper into the water isn't so much coming from hinging at the waist. Uh, I like to, once the blade is, set in the water and I'm starting to use my my hips and my glutes to pull, I find if I bend my legs more, 
and use my legs to help sink the blade deeper in the water. I can engage my, my leg muscles a lot more. And the other thing is that when I'm finishing the stroke uh, and bring my hips kind of back to the paddle to get ready for the next stroke, um, I can sort of stand up and straighten up with my legs and, and um, I really kind of get to spring off the back of the stroke. And uh, so that kind of pumping motion with your legs and, and again, you know, think Connor Baxter because he does that exceptionally well, um, really seems to help uh, with propelling the board forward using big muscles. So, so that's very interesting. And I definitely do hinge and pull my hips back. It's based on foundation training, but I also ride incredibly, I mean, I ride equal weight to volume boards. I mean, we're talking about surf paddle boards here where I sink them and I'm visualizing right now what would happen if I leaned forward and it would be very difficult, I believe, to keep the nose out of the water because I'm constantly trying to keep my back foot semi-weighted to just keep the board planing. So there might be a difference there that I'm going to go play around with um, to see well, how that works with, with you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think it's going to depend on the type of board you're on. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm riding starboard race boards, and they've got a ton of volume in the front. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they do a few things really well. They ride over waves really well, whether it's... Um, you know they're tremendous for going upwind because they just kind of ride over the waves. Um, downwinding, they're they're relatively easy to ride because they they don't tend to pearl a lot. The nose doesn't bury, um, and so I can get my weight really forward without uh, having to worry about the you know the nose going under. Um, and because they're displacement noses, if they do go under, they they they're going to pop back up. And if you're on a sub surfboard, that's not going to be the case. So. Um, you know, the, the type of board that we're riding may um, dictate a slightly different approach. Yeah. Um, and I just don't have enough background on, a, a, you know, a surfing to really know, um, to be able to speak to how you could transition the technique from, uh, you know, one sort of sub-discipline to another. Um, well, living I- in the Great Lakes, we don't see a ton of what you'd call good surf. So um, <laughs> I'm a little limited there. Um, well, everything sounds the same except for the leaning forward on the toes. That's the only part of uh, the stroke that I practice. So I'm going to look into that. I'll look into those videos, then I'm going to go out and drill on that and see what happens when you lean forward because it does sound like you would get an extra six inches of pull there. Are you – Yeah. Here. I, 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 well, I was just going to say, I, I tell you what, I mean, I've got a blog on my website, uh, LarryKane.ca. And the, one of the last posts I made was called Learning to Sprint. And I've got a couple of pictures on there and some video of uh, Connor and uh, Seychelle, who's uh, from Florida. And, uh, um, Seychelle was the fastest woman in the world at the Lost Mills race, the 200-meter race, and Connor was the fastest man. Um, and I've got video of both of their races and pit, sort of pictures from both their races. And you can really see that weight-forward position as they're catching. So... Take a look at that because it helps illustrate what I was talking about, and um, and then go and play with it and see if it applies to uh, you know to sub surfing. That sounds like a good idea, and I did I did read that blog this morning and, and got a lot of value out of it. Uh, that's a good segue into what you and John are doing with Paddle Monster, talking about the video breakdown. Why don't you just give a a quick minute on what you guys are doing? Because I think it's uh, I think there's a lot of value in that for folks, especially on the race side. 
Well, um, uh, thanks for the opportunity to do that. Um, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I was a school teacher, and John was doing the distressed mullet, and we had known each other for a while since basically the first year I went down to North Carolina. It was that was my first race. Was a the um, what was it called? The uh, Cold Stroke Challenge in January 2011. I met him there, and we've been talking on and off about. Um, getting some type of sub coaching project going, but um, I had a full time job and he was busy and with uh, you know uh, with his family and and, and uh, the mullet, and so um, it never really came to pass. And then I got this job coaching the national team in canoe kayak, and uh, I got even more into coaching and I had a little bit more time, and then. I found out that my contract was going to expire with the team before the Olympics. It actually ended April 1st because of uh, funding issues. So I was suddenly looking for something else to do. And he was ready to move on, a, on you know, some type of project in this regard. So we put our heads together last fall and came up with this idea of Paddle Monster. And basically, we like to call it an online training community uh, where people um we supply basically a lot of resources um that um help people learn more about paddling and about training for paddling so we've got a video library with tons of uh instructional videos drills and whatnot that we've put together we're filming a bunch more stuff um next week um and then um uh, there's a lot of blog uh, posts that go up. Uh, we, I do a lot of blogging. We've had guest bloggers that come on there and talk about technique and training and mental preparation for training and racing and that type of thing. Um, but the gist of it or the, the real uh, main focus of it is um, this training group. And so basically what I do is I post uh, every week three levels of programs. So there's like a novice, intermediate, and advanced program. And it's not unlike what I experienced as an athlete at the Canoe Club, where the coach would put, uh, you know, one or two programs for the different training groups up on the wall of the Canoe Club, and there'd be 30 to 40 athletes working off of those programs. Now, you know, in a group of 30 to 40 athletes, you've got people of different um, abilities, even within the high-performance group. And you've also got people who have different things going on in their lives, like they've got students have exams or they've got... Um, you know, say if they're when they're kids on their training program, they've got job commitments and things like that. So basically what happens is although there's one program, uh, if there's 40 athletes, there's really 40 um, uh, customizations that go on for that program. So that, uh, the, you know, the coach works with each athlete to tweak the program to best meet the needs of each athlete. So working on that model, I post the program um, each week for the three levels of trainers and um, uh, they, the, the athletes or the paddlers interact with me through a, a form. So if you were one of the people in the intermediate group, say, or the advanced group, you would um, get the program, you'd download it, and then you'd look at it and you'd consider you know, the time constraints that you have in any given week uh, or in, in this particular week, and you would... Um, communicate with me through the form and say, you know, I'm, all, I'm all good, but I've got a problem with Thursday. Uh, I can't do Thursday. What should I do? How should I tweak the program? Or what can I do to, to um, work around that? And then my job as the coach is to help them come up with a plan that best meets their needs, that uh, you know, allows them to adjust the program to their schedule. The other thing that is really common is you know, we've got 
almost 200 people who are taking advantage of these programs. And um, you can only imagine with 200 paddlers, there's basically 200 different race cards that people have. They've got people are going to you know all different races, and some of them are training races which aren't high priority, and some of them are events that they've been training an entire year for. And so my job is to help them take that program and and tweak it so that they can perform optimally at the races that matter the most to them. And so, you know, as I say, there's really, you know, it's it's not like the model where you buy a training program and you get it and it, you get all nine weeks in your hands and then you go and do it. Um, this is, it's, a, it's an evolving thing week to week. I, I work on the principles of periodization where, you know, generally we go two weeks really hard and then we've got a week to sort of recover and consolidate gains we made in the hard training. But I'm working with all of the paddlers on an ongoing basis to adjust the program and tailor it to meet their specific needs. And um, uh, because it's in a form, when somebody has a question, um, like say, for example, you have a question, you ask the question and I provide the answer, but everyone else in the training group sees the question and sees the answer. So we're learning from each other. It's like a classroom almost of, of, um, of paddling. And, and the questions are related, obviously, to training because a big part of it is a training program, but also to technique, uh, to racing, to, uh, you know, uh, sports psychology as it relates to stand-up paddle racing, uh, things like nutrition, equipment, um, you know, virtually anything that, that has an impact on the performance of stand-up paddlers. So, um, and then also in addition to that, we've got, we try to run periodic uh, webinars where we get guest uh, speakers that come and, um, uh, they're available for an hour and everyone who's a member can log on and um, interact with this person for the duration of the, the webinar or podcast and they can um, ask questions that they'd like to ask and, and uh, we get the perspective of, of somebody else who's uh, you know, you know, really highly regarded in, in, the, um, in the sport. So um, it's, it's gone very well. Uh, we're only you know, three and a half months in, but we're really pleased with where we're at right now. Uh, we're looking at expanding it to other paddling disciplines like uh, outrigger paddling and surf ski paddling. Um, so we're exploring that at the moment, uh, maybe even prone. Um, and then, of course, too, there's, you know, our, our focus right now primarily is stand-up paddle racing. Um, but, uh, you, you know, just talking to you, it makes me realize that there's the whole um, area of, of subsurfing as well. So there's lots of room for expansion. And the, the key for us is to obviously find the right people to work with us if we're going to expand in those areas. Because the person that you get that's interacting with the, the members um, is really important. They need to be uh, obviously interested in putting the members first and, and uh, you know, uh, going out of their way to, to, to you know, give as much as, uh, as possible of their knowledge and their enthusiasm, their stoke for what, for the sport to the people that, uh, you know, pay to join this. Yeah. You touched there on the mental preparation for competition and, you know, thinking about yeah, having just watched the Olympics and spent a lot of time uh, thinking about, competition over the last few weeks there what's the breakdown of 
a gold medal? How much of it is mental? How much of it is physical? I think it's huge. Um, I absolutely think it's huge. I mean, when you look at, you know, most of the races that you see at the Olympics, except for race, uh, and I'll say, I'll use races, for example. I mean, obviously there's events that aren't races, gymnastics and, and things like that, or there's games or guys have to lift weights or whatever. But, but I mean, if you, if you think of most of the, let's say most of the competitions at the Olympics, um, there's usually, uh, you know, any one of maybe, you know, six to eight people that can win the event, um, except in odd events like, you know, the 100 meters where you've got Usain Bolt, who's, you know, basically on an entirely other level, or Michael Phelps in the pool, who's at an entirely other level. But in most cases, you've got people that are, any, any one of a group of people could win. And I actually think that the, the people that get on the podium are the ones that sort of have their stuff together when it matters most. Um, I think back to my own experiences, and I can think of things that you know, whether it was at the Olympics or the World Championships and racing when I really was on, uh, I wasn't just on physically, but I was really on mentally as well. I was, my focus was, you know, uh, laser sharp and there was no distraction that it that disrupted that. And there was other times when, and I can think of one World Championship in 1987 where I, in a thousand meter race, and uh, I went through the 750 so I had 250 to go and I thought I actually got a, off my focus which was to that point had been on perf, you know performing each stroke perfectly I looked up and I thought I'm going to win this race and um, as soon as I thought that things started to unravel because you know people usually charge hard in the last 200 meters of the race and as soon as they started to make their charge and I had let my focus waver from process to outcome and um, all of a sudden, um, you know, I was dealing with um, pressure from athletes on either side of me who were, you know, making a, a, a furious finish. And um, I ended up actually, you know, slipping from to second to third, and I ended up finishing fifth. And um, that was a real eye opener. So, you know, it, being able to stay in the moment and keep your focus at, at the, you know, and let nothing disrupt it. Um, Thinking only of the process, thinking of what you need to execute uh, and and how to execute it perfectly, that's really key to performing well and not getting caught up in the moment and thinking about, you know, well, what if this happens or what if that happens or, or you know, thinking about the result. You know, everyone wants to win at the Olympics, but it's the ones that can sort of put that aside and just focus on executing that tend to have the best chance of actually winning. Um, so and then, you know... It's handling expectations and, and handling pressure too. Like, uh, I mean, we saw an athlete, a Canadian athlete, who uh, was performing wonderfully well all summer, go into a semifinal, and um, you know, uh, this is a really experienced athlete in his fourth Olympics, and who's got four medals under his belt already. And he went in and just was totally out to lunch in the first part of his race, and didn't recover from that. Um, and uh, it just looked like, you know, I, I, would, I would suggest maybe that he was just, you know, the, the, the pressure of expectations, his own or those that he felt from others maybe got to him because the next day he went out in the B final and was relaxed and uh, just commented even in his interview afterward how much he loved the sport and he just went out and wanted to enjoy himself and paddle perfect strokes. 
And he did a time in the B final, which was only 10 minutes before the A final, that would have put him second in the A final. And that's very unusual that that happens because usually the B final times at best are, you know, seventh or eighth in the A final. So it shows the power of the mind. It can be a, a huge uh, help in performance and it can also be a huge barrier to performance. Um, and uh, how you manage to control it, uh, I think, has a big impact on your performance. I like that line of thought of controlling process and not focusing on outcome because that's all you really can control is the process. And when you were going into big races, the games, did you lay out a game plan for the process, kind of a, a mental – I mean, I had a really interesting conversation with Jamie Mitchell about you know, the, the Malachi race that he's won so many times and about – how he has to control his demons throughout that race um, and stay positive because it gets mm -hmm. super brutal. Um, but in the sprint racing, and you're talking mm -hmm. about staying focused on perfect strokes, do you drill that and try to drill the mental process so then you're on autopilot during the race and you don't become focused on the outcome or thinking outside of the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's easier for us in a short race to to – um, maintain focus than it is for somebody who's in a, you know, a four hour race. Um, I, you know, you just, I mean, ask anybody, it's easier to focus for a short period of time than it is for a much longer period of time. But, um, you know, what I would do in, in training was I was very intense in training. And when we had a hundred percent or all out type training sessions, uh, my focus was locked in like it was a race. And that meant that I was focused on every stroke as if it was my last and um, it had to be perfect and I wasn't worried about anything else. I mean, everything else was left on shore. Um, all it was was me, my boat, my paddle and, and the water and uh, and just executing perfectly. If you do that, you know, you know yourself, repetition is is hugely important for building habits and patterns. If you do that, then you've got a much better chance of 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 performing that way when it matters most, but you still have to get there. And, you know, the Olympics is another creature entirely because the whole world watches. And most Olympic sports, you have athletes that are performing, you know, in obscurity for three years, and then all of a sudden they're thrust into the limelight at the Olympics. And it's, it's very difficult for them sometimes to manage the, you know, the sudden... Uh, you know, uh, there's their time in the spotlight. And so, um, but I do know that when I was most successful, uh, I was able to, um, maintain a focus that was only on, um, paddling every stroke as well as I possibly could. And there was no thought of, um, what, you know, of getting ahead of myself and thinking about the result, or there was no thought of, Oh, what happens if I don't, you know, get the result I'm looking for? You know, they, 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 these are irrelevant thoughts. And furthermore, you know, when you're racing against other people that are trying to do the same thing uh, and are equally well prepared, um, you know, you can only control what you can do. You you can't control what they're going to do. And so, um, you know, I think of '88 when I came fourth. Um, I was the best I could have done that day. I, I, I had a great race. Uh, I just got beat by three guys that were on that day faster. And um, But it's not like I did something wrong. Um, so, 
um, it's, it's hugely important. And I think what I did to try to help me replicate what I didn't practice so well in a race was I always had a, a pre, uh, I had two plans. I had one was a pre-race plan, which is where I kind of scripted my whole routine in advance. So I knew what I was going to be doing every minute of time up until the time that I found myself on the starting line. Because I find a lot of people go to events and they don't have that kind of focus uh, and they get distracted. You know, But if you have a script that you're going to follow, if you have a plan that you're going to follow, if, you, if every minute of your time is budgeted, you tend to stick to your schedule and you don't end up looking around to see what other people, your competitors are doing. So that really helped. And then the other thing that I did was I always had a race plan. And uh, that was basically... Uh, more or less what it was, was a schedule for the, 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 the self-talk, the dialogue that you have for yourself when you're racing. Um, you know, cue words that you use to refocus at certain points in the race to help you continue to do uh, w- your job of, of paddling effectively and doing, um, you know, uh, every stroke, is, executing every stroke as perfectly as you could and, and, and it would help you avoid distractions. So those two tools, a pre-race plan and a race plan I found to be really useful. So in, 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 in those races, there's a couple of different lines of, uh, that we could go down here, but let me start here. In those races, there's a big difference, and this is something that I talk about in surfing and that I notice working with my kids and all over the place, is the difference between functioning from your conscious mind and then your unconscious mind, the, the whole self one, self two. Mm-hmm. Um, debate there did you have were, were those routines for race day and for the race self-talk they're basically to help you stay out of your own head and allow your subconscious to to be the one uh, running the show because generally when you get your 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 consciousness in, involved you, you go haywire a little bit you, you absolutely um yeah to a degree that's they, they, they were they were useful for that um one thing i did um, and I still do it uh, in in my training day to day. Is you know I spend time each session where I'm actually doing a lot of thinking. I'm in the conscious. I'm working on you know some element of technique. I'm I'm trying to execute something you know really perfectly. Uh, and I'm I'm you know trying to control my movements. And and so it, it, I'm very much thinking about what I'm doing. And then I'll try to. Um, I'll, in every session, I'll try to have a, a a section of it where I just don't think I re, I just react, and um, I tend to shift my focus for, away from things like you know how my body's moving to I just focus more on the feeling of um, you know of the uh, the water against my paddle of my board moving through the water the sound of my board as it moves through the water the 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 what my nose wave of my board looks like as it moves through the water. Um, um, you know, uh, if I'm downwinding, I'm just looking. I'm just trying to get really try to be one with the water, not overanalyze. You know, where the waves or the rides are. I'm just trying to respond and just sort of see them and 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 get them without thinking. And and so I am kind of more on on autopilot. And I think that if you if you live in the, if you practice switching from those two minds um, on a sort of a day-to-day basis, um, I think that it's it's 
more easy for you to flip the switch and be in the one that you need to be for competition um, because it's a place where you, that you go all the time. It's a place you're familiar with and it's a place that um, you're comfortable in. Um, and um, uh, you can sort of leave that conscious, the conscious athlete behind and you can just kind of react and um, uh, because I entirely agree with you when you need to have a flow you know when you're performing well there's a flow there's a flow of energy there's a flow of of movement everything is flowing everything is just uh, sort of like a natural uh, flowing um, uh, you know your motion is flowing and, and it's like a flow of energy and, and um, thought often ruins that because then it's uh, it's no longer a natural flow it's something that's contrived and um, and my experience has been that uh, when it matters most uh, you know reflex actions are what you're looking for because they're fast um, but if you're taking time to analyze things uh, consciously um, it's too slow and um, you won't do things as well and I think that would I can imagine that really applying to sports like surfing um, you know where you just have to feel the wave and do what you do uh, and trust your instincts and your preparation and the patterns that you've developed after, you know from riding wave after wave after wave you can't um, be on a wave and be analyzing what's happening it just kinda has to be those calculations have to be automatic at that point I would think mm -hmm. um, um, and I think it's I think that's similar in many many sports I just think that you see you know they call it a paralysis by analysis when you think too much and um, so I just try to practice being in that you know there are times each practice where I have to think about what I'm doing and it needs there's a lot of conscious decisions or, or conscious thinking that I do but I also try to go to a place where I just flow and uh, I don't think about anything other than just the feeling of what I'm doing um, you're 100% right about surfing, and it's been a fun process. My, my my kids are getting into surfing. I have a seven and a nine year old, and my son especially is into just like all sorts of cool, deliberate practice type games that we play. Which one of them's ball drills, so he'll stand on the, like the Bosu, like a balance ball type of thing, and I'll throw the ball back and forth. Mm -hmm. And some sometimes he'll get into his own head, and uh, if he gets into his own head and starts missing a few in a row, I'll ask him to tell me which way the ball is spinning and I'll throw balls with different spin. And once his mind has something to occupy it, which way is the ball spinning? He'll go 10, 15 in a row and not miss one. And it's just a simple little trick mm -hmm. of, of positioning the very cool trick. The purpose, some, the, the, the mind somewhere else. And so in coaching, I noticed this first with my son and then in coaching, people would get in their own heads in surfing. I coach surfing here in Costa Rica and I'll, I'll ask similar type questions of, I just want you to tell me where your paddle position was on your bottom turn. So now they've got this thought in their head, I just need to figure out, I just need to make a mental mark of where the paddle is or where my front foot was when I caught the wave. But now their conscious mind has something to focus on and it gets out of the way from the surfing. And it, and it seems to really work. I like that. Um, yeah, I like that. All right, so something that I am interested in, and this is kind of a personal question here for it not personal to you but personal to kind of an experience that i'm going through i last year sold a company and so i spent 10 years building up this this uh organization small little organization here but it was everything that i did 
um, planned for a couple years for an exit, worked really hard for that exit, exited. Paddle was my passion project since then, but you know, you work towards this goal and then you, you know, in this case achieved the goal and then it's kind of the now what, and you have, I had this very strange sense for a few months and I have a feeling that as an Olympic athlete, that would have been a, a pretty huge, uh, roller coaster ride that you, that you would go on there every four years. And then especially maybe the last Olympics that you did too. Can you talk through, is that something that you would prepare for the come down from the back of the Olympics or is that something that would affect you at all? Um, yes. I mean, certainly it affects you. Um, I, I don't think it's not something that I, consciously prepared for because I mean let's face it you're trying to prepare for the Olympics uh, you know you don't really want to be even thinking about the after the Olympics um, you know it all comes down to being in the moment and thinking about the process rather than the outcome or what comes after the outcome you know um, having said that um, you know you do know as an athlete that at, uh, at some point things come to an end so you're you're taking care of things concurrently with your training like your education and and you're leaving doors open so that you can have employment opportunities when you're finished competing um but uh it's really hard like i know athletes that have really struggled with um uh with you know just actually their sense of self-worth after the olympics are over because um you know for four years or more all that's mattered to them is their sport and their performance, and it becomes their identity. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, they compete, and the next day it's over. And if it's your last Olympics and you're not going back, um, then and your career is winding down, then it's um, you know, it, it, it their their life just changed almost overnight. And I think there's a lot of athletes that have a hard time with that. Um, I was fortunate in two ways. One is that, you know, I had my biggest success in my first Olympics and I was 21 at the time and there was no question I was going to go back. So I just went home and enjoyed, you know, um, uh, the satisfaction of having done well for a couple of weeks and I started training again. And so nothing really changed. Um, and I was able to do that after each of the th uh, three Olympics I went to because I had every intention of competing in 96 where for me things were difficult was after the selection competition in 96 when you know I fully expected to make the Olympic team and all of a sudden I was driving home from our selection which were on the Olympic course in Atlanta and I had an 18-hour drive back to Toronto you know confronting now what because all of a sudden my career was over and um you know, for me, two things happened that were good. One was that I got straight into Dragon Boat and we went to, uh, we raced in Hong Kong, a bunch of us, and we did, we were the first team from outside Asia to ever win the Hong Kong Dragon Boat Festival, which was a big event in Asia, and over here people didn't care about it, but but we we did something that wasn't supposed to be done, so that was a cool, you know, moment. Um, we were all had a lot of fun doing it. And then I came home and I got a I got a teaching job. So right away I had something else to do. Um, but for people that are left with a void because it it takes them a while to find out what uh, they're you know what's next, 
um, it's got to be really hard. And I know that there's athletes that struggle with it. And um, um, every Olympics in Canada, anyway, every Olympics that come around, there's always some stories about the athletes that um, struggle with what to do after sport. Uh, it's tough. And, um, but I think the key is to find something else that you can immerse yourself in that can fill the void that's left uh, from no longer being an athlete, um, but that can that brings with it challenges that being an athlete uh, bring. Like there's goals, there's um, there's things to prepare for. Um, you will end up applying the same principles that lead to success as an athlete to some other endeavor in life. And it's something like I'm doing that with Paddle Monster right now, which is really cool. You know, it's like. You're building something just like you're trying to build a, um, you know, your your abilities as an athlete. We're trying to build and develop a, a business, and so it's there. The similarities are huge. It's just an entirely different, uh, you know, uh, endeavor. But the 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 similarities are there. Um, yeah. So so I I was worrisome about what was going to happen after the exit of uh, my other company. And so I decided that my type A mind needed something to focus on. And this was that project. And so now I'm a year later and it it turned into something pretty fun and cool. Um, Mm -hmm. So last, last topic I'd like to touch with you. And that is training routines, a little bit on diet and you're in incredibly good shape um, for anyone's age and uh, out of the water training. So let's start with, what are some out of the water exercises that you find most impactful? Um, I think you know for me um, what's for me stand up paddling requires a lot of strength. Um, if you look at the strength that canoe kayak athletes develop to move their boats through the water um, and then you look at their boats, their boats are really skinny. Uh, and they're long, and they're they're made to go through the water fast. And then you look at a a stand up paddleboard, um, and you could look at the I don't care you know look at the the sleekest race board. It's still a surfboard, and it's meant to really ride a wave in the ocean. It's not really meant to go through flat water or upwind or whatever fast. And so. Um, you're dealing with a lot of resistance and if you're going to move it fast through the water, you need to have a lot of strength and you need to have a lot of power endurance. So I spend a lot of time working on exercises that develop power endurance in the paddling muscle. So I do a lot of leg work. Uh, I do a lot of plyometric type leg work um, because they're explosive um, and I do high reps um, which develop the power endurance. Um, when you do those plyometric type trainings where you're doing, you know, like leaping and landing, that type of thing, they're really good for developing the proprioception in your feet and your lower legs. So you've got these specialized, uh, uh, nerve cells within your muscles that are called proprioceptors, which detect changes in balance and, and pressure and tension in the muscle. And, um, they're what, uh, basically, you know, are highly developed in people like uh, surfers um, in their feet and in their lower legs so that they can feel the board underneath them and they can know where to stand and how to walk around on their board when they're bombing down a wave. 
Um, and these are things that most people who get involved in stand-up paddling, if they didn't grow up doing it, uh, don't have very well developed. And I didn't have very well developed when I started. So um, it's kind of uh, killing two birds with one stone. If you're doing a lot of that plyometric stuff, you can develop the power endurance that you need in your legs. And, and I think you'd agree that as soon as your legs are gone, uh, you might as well head to shore because you you know you can't paddle well, and I don't think you'd be able to surf well either as soon as your legs are gone. So um, it's really important that you work train your legs, and, but if you can also train your balance uh, while you're doing it, if you can if you can heighten the sensitivity of this, the, the the nervous system that help, helps control your balance while you're doing your leg training, then you're really doing accomplishing two very important things at the same time. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, and then in addition, I do general fitness stuff, uh, again, with a focus on power endurance for my core, um, uh, which includes, you know, hip flexors, abs, obliques, uh, lower back, and then, you know, for the upper body as well, uh, shoulders, back, that type of thing. I don't spend a lot of time on arms. Uh, as I said, they're just connecting rods. Um, but, but, you know, legs and, and explosive dynamic uh, plyometric type stuff are hugely important. So that would be box jumps, sprints. Um, what box other what jumps, other specific squat jumps? Um, you know, well, so a typical leg routine would be like, um, you know, thirty repetitions. I do it in a circuit style. I do like um, step lunges with a little jump uh, each time. I do squat jumps, box jumps. Um, Split squat jumps, uh, like a skating motion that where I'm jumping side to side laterally, uh, landing on one foot and then landing, controlling the landing, then springing to the other foot. Um, Bulgarian split squats where you've got one foot elevated on a bench behind you. Uh, an exercise I call frog jumps where you're basically you know in a crouch and then exploding, jumping as far as you can, landing, controlling the landing, and then doing it again. Um, uh, I'm trying to think uh, what else. Um, I like to do uh, squats uh, on uh, standing on hard medicine balls uh, or on the stability ball where you're introducing a lot of balance as you're doing it. Um, all of these are, are the types of things that I would do. And then I do a lot of, you know, for a lot of the uh, upper body stuff, I'm doing, trying to do things where I'm putting my... Uh, like uh, a lot of them are just variations on a simple push-up, where I'm uh, I'm I'm introducing a high degree of difficulty uh, in terms of balance while I'm doing my push-up and trying to do those movements explosively as well. Um, so um, you know I'm not in the gym pounding heavy heavy weights anymore, um, and uh, since I've stop doing that i've actually seen an increase in performance that's interesting any unique diet tips any anything that you're jamming on right now as far as diet goes balance and quality uh that's pretty much it um i i think that um uh you know uh the best um the most bioavailable nutrients are found in in good quality whole foods not in you know in supplements and things like that so eating good quality whole foods like if you're shopping you know the best place best way to shop is around the perimeter of the supermarket because you've always got that's where all your 
whole foods are, the, the foods that don't have ingredient labels uh, on the packaging. You know, you, you've got fruits and vegetables in one area, you work your way around a little bit more, you've got milk and dairy, you work your way a little bit further along, you've got, you've got meat, and you work your way a little bit further along, and you've got your, you know, your bakery, and so there you've got, you know, whole grains and things like that, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, going up and down the, the aisles in the middle where you've got all your processed food. So um, that's, you know, kind of the rule I try to live by. And um, um, I, it seems to be doing all right. It's just trying to have, I think for me, it seems to be, you know, working well. It's just um, trying to eat a balanced diet of good quality food. All right. What do you want to leave folks with today? Any last words? Um, no, other than to say it was uh, super fun chatting with you, and um, I'd love to come to Costa Rica sometime. Uh, here it's beautiful, and I know John and I are actually looking at places to uh, to uh, take Paddle Monster at some point. So uh, Costa Rica is one of the things we've talked about. Um, uh, you know, it, it's fun for me to be on a show with you that's that's more about subsurfing than it is about. Uh, sup racing um, because I'm that's the weakest part of my um, you know that's the weakest ability I have is in surf we just don't see surf in the Toronto area so um, but it is interesting I think to, to see how much each stand-up paddling discipline kind of has in common or shares with with each other and and um, um, you know it's something I have to do more of before uh, before I'm too old and can't enjoy doing it. So I'll leave it at that. All right, Larry, I had a blast chat, and thank you very much for being on the show. I'm going to probably shoot you some follow up emails for some links for show notes and all sorts of things. And um, okay, it was really fun. Cool, I enjoyed it. It's the Paddle Podcast.